This is Dan Fagella, and you're listening to AI in Industry. This entire month, we're focused on the ROI of AI. Last week, we spoke with Charles Martin of Calculation Consulting out in the Bay Area. And this week, we speak with a guest who was actually with us last month, David Carmona, the GM of Artificial Intelligence at Microsoft, joins us in speaking about his approach to AI ROI with the enterprise clients of Microsoft. The biggest takeaway from this episode, bar none, actually comes right at the beginning. There's a lot of great insights, so listen to the end for sure. But right off the bat, David talks about how to think about artificial intelligence ROI in the long term and the near term. That is to say, how are we going to see a relatively near term return, some kind of low hanging fruit, some kind of tangible, completable project that might be able to improve our condition, and at the same time, keep in mind the longer-term disruption in our sector, the longer-term advantage that we can gain by building AI capability. David talks about how they do that brainstorm exercise, and it's a very interesting exercise. I think it's probably advisable for most folks that are in strategy mode to tune into maybe twice the beginning portion of this episode. I got a lot out of it, uh, certainly enjoyed it on my end, and I hope that you will as well. So without further ado, we're going to hop right in. This is David Carmona with Microsoft here on AI and Industry. All right, so David, I wanted to begin with talking about the ROI from AI. When the C-suite is really thinking through an AI project, it's irresponsible for them to ignore return on investment, but it's very hard to pin AI to a specific monetary goal from any given project within a limited time horizon. How do you get the best of, of both worlds when it comes to AI for a specific project? Hi, Dan. Yes, I, I agree with that. So when we say ROI, we usually mean that we are focused on that pure short-term revenue play. And that is tricky, right? When we talk about technology like AI that can change your business entirely. So instead of that, we usually prefer to talk about value, which is broader than just revenue. So that could be, yes, it could be less cost, it could be more revenue, but it could be improving my customer experience or it could be increasing the employee productivity or many others that are broader than just a short-term revenue play. But as you said, you have to balance both. So many times we have to pay for the project as we work on it, right? So all the leaders are also looking for that immediate return of investment. So what we do in Microsoft is that we use a very, very simple framework to help customers have that balance between the two, right? And we call that framework Agile Value Modeling. And it's super simple. So just let me give you just a couple of hints of that framework. That yeah, is yeah. more like a conversation with, with customers, right? So we ask them to position all the opportunities that they have for AI. So all the opportunities that they can think of to bring AI for their business. Um, by the way, the one thing that we always say here is, please, before doing that, know the capabilities of AI. So remember from the previous yes, podcast yes, yes, yes. that we're discussing that. Yep. <laughs> you need to know what AI can do and what AI cannot do to have that conversation, right? So once you have that, then you ask them to position all those opportunities, right? And you can think of it in a very simple way. So you can have tactical projects on one side and then strategic programs or initiatives on the other side. That's it. That's the only thing that you need to do. And then just a bubble with the size of the opportunity. So it could be more revenue, as you said, or it could be better uh, experience with customers. And then as you have that conversation, that's why we call it agile, because this is an iterative conversation. So the point is that you may have a big bubble that is longer term, then then you need to map with the smaller bubbles on the left, right? So sometimes you need to think big, but start small. 
but you need to consider both things. So in that framework, we try to have that conversation of thinking big, but then getting there with a smaller projects that you can measure. And that's the second thing that we ask in this kind of exercise is always think of how you're going to measure success for each of those bubbles. So those could be, like you said before, that revenue, but it could be anything. It could be, I'm going to improve my NSAT in my customer service. I'm going to reduce my workload for my call center of I want to improve my satisfaction on the product or the revenue of a particular segment. So all of that, you need to always put a label in those in those bubbles that you have in there. Got it. And I think this is what you're talking about is looking at value rather than ROI. I think one of the perennial issues that we see in the banking world where we just finished a big report, we hear a lot of complaints about finance running AI initiatives where the the monetary return has to be there, right? That's the singular metric. What you're talking about is extrapolating these ideas, kind of near-term, long-term, understanding the capabilities, fleshing those out. I imagine we'd have subject matter experts and maybe even, you know, some data science folks in the room to kind of build those ideas together and combine brain power. But then to think not just about where can we save money or make money, but where can we just where can we measure some kind of tangible value? And like you said, that might be customer service, which maybe that would yield longer term retention of these customers. Maybe that's really hard to measure, but we could measure how satisfied they are when they get off the phone. And so thinking of value as a, as a broader pie that doesn't have to be the first finance number that a project hits. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Because if you do that, then you avoid this behavior that you always see in the enterprise of those one-shot project. So maybe the best project to get to the big bubble with that big value that you're looking for in the long term, maybe it's not going to be the most profitable one in the short term. So you need to have that balance. You need to think, hey, I'm going to target this big strategy in my company. And then, yes, I need to get there by smaller projects that can return my investment immediately. But you can have that discussion openly. So it sounds like this is something that you would advocate happens sort of as we're picking a project, we should see enough of a landscape in the way that you're articulating it to look at the financial ROI, but also the other measurements of value so that maybe we can pick the right project, but we can also go in with our eyes a little bit more open to measures of return, quote unquote, that might be improvements that may not show up on the balance sheet in 30 days. Um, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And it's not the first time that we that we have a revolution like this, right? So if you think of, I don't know, the internet. So it's like looking at the internet uh, 20 years ago, just thinking that, uh, hey, the internet is going to provide me this super tactical project to, I don't know, to make my website, right? The internet was much bigger than that. So those who stayed with the eye in the long-term vision, and then, yes, you need to get there by smaller projects, like the website, of course. But the change was much bigger to just think so tactically about it. Got it. Yeah, and I think the same sort of almost almost harder to think through it with AI to some degree because of how much creep there is and what kinds of capabilities AI enables. You know, you've really got to be able to stay on top of, of these things and there's a lot of that kind of learning up front to understand those capabilities in the first place. So cool. Okay. Mm. So this is a good sort of pre-project process to go through. And, you know, for those of you who are listening in right now, you might be thinking like, okay, well, yeah, vendor companies are always going to tell me not to try to measure, you know, financial ROI or whatever. I really think that, you know, David's insights here are mirrored by essentially anybody who knows their stuff applying AI in the enterprise. It is very, very hard to, to nickel and dime this stuff. And I think that this cool framework is 
a useful tool and hopefully useful for the listeners as well. David, I want to pivot into our second question, which is about executing on a project while it's underway. A lot of AI projects start to run amok after the C-suite kind of pulls the trigger, whether we didn't think about preparing the data properly or providing enough guidance from a data science perspective or a subject matter experts perspective and subject matter experts just want to do their regular job and not help the data science team. Lots of ways where things could steer wrong when it comes to shaking out that value you were talking about, making sure that as we steer a project along within an enterprise, we can give ourselves the best chance of seeing those needles move, of seeing those metrics improved. What are some of those best practices when we're in the thick of it? that we need to be mindful of to bring a kind of corporate AI project to life? Yeah, so usually an amazing job in the first phase, right? So imagine that you are now in a point where you identified the right projects. So that balance between short-term, long-term, you identify the business metrics that you want to drive with each of those projects. So in an ideal world, it would be as simple as throwing those projects over the wall, right? And just waiting for them to be completed, right? That would be the ideal world. Now, the problem is that AI is not that simple. So it's not like building a house or building a bridge where you just need to follow the blueprint, right? A lot of things can go wrong with an AI project. And I think the interesting thing here is that we have had that experience already. So we already solved this for software development. So that concept of you start a project where the business is connected with the project and then making sure that as you implement the project, the business is still connected with execution of it. So it's not that thing that we throw over the wall and the business is disconnected until the end. We have solved already that for software development and it's called DevOps, right? So in a sense, DevOps, yes, it's something bigger. It's a philosophy, it's technologies, practices, but at the end, in its essence, DevOps is making sure that while you are executing the project, there's continuous connection to the business. So it doesn't fork, right? So that initial idea that you had at the beginning with this framework, it ends on the business value at the end. Yep. Yeah, go yeah, ahead. Sorry, and I know you, you have a way of thinking about that kind of through the, the ML apps lens as well. Exactly. And I'd be interested so, to get a sense yeah, of so, what's involved uh, there. Exactly. So there are many names for this. So we are still trying to get aligned in the industry thing on how to call DevOps apply to AI because it's not the same. So I think I oversimplified this, right? So in reality, AI has many differences with traditional software development. You have data, you have the concept of models, you have at the end, you have things like the model can go wrong because the data changes, right? So it's very, very different. And you have a new role. You have the data scientist that you don't have in traditional software development. So that name, I see from what we see in the market is starting to stick the name of MLOps, right? Which is the same concept of DevOps, but applied to machine learning. Yeah. And when it comes to steering a project in the same way, where we're making sure that as we're moving through, we land on the business value. Clearly, to some degree, this involves, I would imagine, some degree of champion here from the business side, someone with the business context to really keep a pulse on, are these models drinking in the features that our salespeople think are relevant or that our fraud experts think are relevant? Is this interface going to be something that ultimately serves us that we can actually use in the field or in our day-to-day work? That perspective seems like it has to be layered in as the data science kind of grunt work and science itself kind of happens, what does that dance look like when it's done well? You know, when you think about a good mm. balanced team that, that ultimately lands on business value, gets to see some of that value come to life, everybody's concerned about realizing that. 
you know, it's impossible to generalize to all projects, but you've probably seen enough functional teams that do a good job. What does that look like? Yeah, I think the two things that I see when this is working is the first one is that, of course, the business cannot get involved in, I don't know, the, the day-to-day development, right? So it's not that you can send a piece of code or, I don't know, your TensorFlow model to the business person and then to for him or her to provide feedback, right? That, that yeah, is not going to yeah, work. Nope. So to be able to have the business involved in your daily process, you need to deliver daily. So that's the first thing of MLOps is the ability to deliver not at the end of the project, not every week, but even every day or even several times a day. So the business can get involved continuously in that process, right? And for that to happen, the best practice in there is, of course, automating your life cycle. It's making sure that you have a technology and a process in place from the moment that a data scientist creates a new model to the moment that that model is packaged and then that model is deployed into production all of that has to be automated, right? So it can happen. We call that usually that that time that it takes, uh, we call it mean time to resolution, right? MTTR. You want that time to be as short as possible. Ideally, minutes, right? So you don't want manually sending something to the developer for that developer to package with the documentation and then spending three days to understand the model and then moving into production, going through a different process. You want all of that automated. That would be the first thing. Got it. And and it sounds like, you know, you're talking about delivering daily. I guess I'm just going to try to clarify this for the listeners uh, at home. In terms of what that delivery will look like, do we, I guess, on the, depending on the size of the project, we may need a different number of business or subject matter expert folks to be sort of communicating at this cadence with the machine learning people and developers and whatnot. In terms of what the the subject matter expert is sort of doing in terms of this delivering daily, is there often some degree of feedback? Is there a bit of a daily stand-up here? Is it kind of an email update and then a weekly kind of meeting of some kind? It's got to vary project to project, but just in terms of what maybe a business could expect. I imagine an executive listening right now saying, okay, well, how much time should I budget my subject matter Mm -hmm. experts to have this constant conversation? Clearly, it's time, but clearly, it's also valuable. How much of that happens? What does that interface between the two look like? Yeah, no, that, that's a great question because actually it connects very well with the second point that I was going to say that is critical, right? And and is the fact that this automated pipeline that you have, that automated life cycle, it should be a closed loop, right? So when you put something in production, you have to put in place things like monitoring or things like just health uh, monitoring, right? So you can understand the usage that is having that model in production, right? So it's not that you have like a gate with the business that you send a new version and then the business is going to take a look to it and then you have like this pipeline where the business is basically like a gate, like a blocker, right? That is that is stopping my delivery. No, what you do is that you continuously move to production. So the system is always going to be up to date in a production or pre-production environment for the business to start using it. And the business should start using it in the context of the project. So we should start putting it into the real usage as soon as possible. And as the business is using it, then development can monitor what is happening. They can monitor uh, not only their usage, but also the metrics, the outcome of it. And the business can provide feedback as they are using it. So look at it more as 
I'm using it as I learn from it and not the other way around and not stopping like a blocker where the business is going to be a gate all the time. Yeah. Okay. So just being able to have some way of accessing what we're working on. So it's not like, hey, you know, give us five months and then there will be something for you, the business person to look at and tell us about. Instead, it's more of, well, as soon as we can get the assets together and we can sort of get something off the ground, you know, you're going to be able to leverage this, play with this in a kind of, I imagine, a kind of safe sandbox type environment and let us know as we're moving here, as we're moving quick, um, you know, if there's other conversations we need to have, if there's any concerns. It, it sounds like that's more of the kind of relationship that would open up here. Exactly. And then I think the most difficult part in here is that as you do that, you shouldn't lose the measurement that you decided when you were building your framework at the very beginning. So that bubble that you put a value into it, as you are developing, you need to make sure that you don't lose track of that. Because usually the other thing that we see all the time is that you have this amazing vision. But then once you uh, move that vision to the technical teams, all they care is, I don't know, the model accuracy or the reliability of the system, which of course, those are things that we have to care about. But that was not the point. We yeah. don't we not only want a reliable system, we want a system that is connected to the business value that we defined at the beginning. Yeah. So that should be part of the entire loop all the time. Yeah. So all the all of these interfacing conversations and hopefully all of the sort of high-level thinking from the people who are managing the data scientists and the data uh, engineers here, the people that are really running the data science shop, they're going to have to be responsible to hold that business value in their head, not just excellent data science in their head. Um, and the business exactly. people the business people are going to have to have the discipline to show up to those conversations. And instead of saying, oh, what about this? What about this? What about this? And getting all excited in 50 directions, they're going to have to bear in mind that we deployed resources to improve this goal. And by all means, we should try to operate under this umbrella unless for some reason we believe we can't and not get distracted by shiny objects. So there's sounds like discipline on both sides. Yes, that is exactly correct. Yes. Huh. Okay. Yeah. Well, really important for setting expectations for the listeners, I think. And, you know, we're touching on a topic right now, David, that ties into my last question, which is really around common misconceptions or trip ups. So when folks head out into an AI project and they, they really drop the ball on return on investment, they really kind of mess things up in the first place. You've, you've already touched on a few things. You talked about um, coming up with more than one idea and understanding value before you get started. We talked about the limitations of just thinking about finance in the short term and how how terribly limiting that is to, to what AI can actually do. You also talked about team dynamics. Is there anything else in terms of common trip-ups, things that you see companies do, enterprises do, and they don't mean to screw up, but they, they're dropping the ball on return on investment, on finding a way to tangibly measure that, hey, this really came out well. This, this was a worthwhile AI project. What are some other ways that people steer the wrong way and, and kind of get hmm. this wrong? Yeah, and I think you hit a little bit of that in your previous comment. And the test that I always do when, when I talk with an enterprise is, hey, imagine that you go to a data scientist or a developer in your organization. Now, imagine that you ask that person, what are they paid to do? So simple question. Why? So what exactly are you doing to get paid? (laughs) And a common answer there, 99% of the time, they will tell you, hey, I'm paid to deliver high quality code, or I'm paid to deliver accurate models if that person is a data scientist, right? That is a symptom of not embracing envelopes, right? So exactly as you said before. So that person should say, hey, I'm paid to increase 
customer satisfaction by X points or reduce costs by this X amount of dollar or whatever the metric is for the project, right? So that is a common test that you can use very easily to understand if your company is really connecting business with technology along all the process. Got it. Okay. So as a way to avoid, it sounds like, the common pitfalls here, we can make sure that you know the management, the business side, the, the developing folks are on the same page about ultimately what is the value, what is the focus, what is the frame, and then maybe you know have the bravery to go in and do those checks, talk to the people that are involved in the project, and and make sure you know as the the folks managing it that people bear that in mind. That three weeks yep. in, we don't just start getting fascinated with the code or fascinated with some newfangled idea that opened up, but that we stay knuckled down to delivering on what we set out to do. Yeah, and I can I can share with you actually how we we took that philosophy to the extreme in Microsoft internally in our own yeah, development. Yeah, please. Right? Oh, this so, would be a, this would be a lot of fun. Go ahead. Yeah. So what we did that uh, this was a, a while ago, but we we had a f- very functional organization in Microsoft. So we had the concept of the team of data scientists and the team for developers and product owners, etc. Right. So right now, the philosophy that we use is very different. So we, instead of having that organization, what we have now is teams that are cross disciplines, right? So you have a team where you have several data scientists, several developers, several administrators for productions, product owners, etc. So the key thing behind that, and we actually, we even took it even more to the extremes because we brought all those people together in the same room. So we changed it in many teams. We changed our configuration of the office to have bigger rooms where we can have all those teams working together. So when you are, when you are a data scientist and you are, I don't know, sending your model to the developer, the developer is by your side. So we, we went that far in this model, right? And the reporting lines are not important here. So you can still have a reporting line that is maybe to the data scientist discipline. But having that concept of people together connected by that business outcome, that made a huge difference for us, right? Because then when you ask anybody in that team for, hey, what is your goal? The developer is not going to say is the code quality. The developer or any other person in the team would say whatever the business outcome is for that project that they are part of. So that that had a, a big impact. And that is part of the DevOps culture and now the MLOps culture, right? It's making sure that everybody is aligned to the same goal and they're working together. And let me just clarify this right before we wrap up, David. I just want to shake this out. Part of this was potentially buffering for bigger meeting rooms and, and allowing these conversations to happen, allowing more of this direct interfacing of you know the developers with the data scientists and, and the business folks to be able to kind of come together and have this osmosis that's so necessary to bring machine learning projects to life. So there's a physical proximity element. Were there other sort of aspects of, of the change that people should make note of? I, there's, there's probably maybe other you know, real lessons learned here in addition to bigger meeting rooms and make sure they talk more. Any other kind of tangible lessons from this big Microsoft experiment? Uh, so three things that, that we make part of this culture transformation that we cover in the AI Business School. One is the concept of being data-driven. So that team that we were mentioning before, they have to have data as part of their DNA. So every decision that they make, everything that they do should be based on data. That is that 
data-centric culture that you need to empower because that's the foundation for AI. Because when you do that, then you are going to create the data, you're going to share the data, and you're going to have high-quality data that then you can use to create relevant AI. So that's the first thing that I would say. The second one has to do more with empowerment. And, and that's the whole concept that without leadership fully encouraging business and technology to take the ownership, to be empowered, to get that business outcome, it's very difficult to have this working, right? So it's not about getting the team together. It's making sure that then the leadership team is empowering that team to make the decisions to have that business impact. So the whole concept of empowering everybody in your organization for those business goals. And then the third one, which I think is very unique for AI, although it has also some impact on software development, is responsibility. So AI is very different from software development in the sense that it comes with some challenges like fairness, transparency, privacy, and many others that you have to keep in mind in that iteration that we said before, that continuous development as part of MLOps, every task, every phase that you have there should consider also those specific aspects that AI brings to the to the business. Got it. Okay. And so these are the big three. Obviously, you'd mentioned the AI Business School, which I know is up online as well. I'd sort of recommend the folks who are listening into this episode, be sure that you listen to the, the previous series on AI adoption. David was one of our interviews in last month's series. As he had mentioned, we did touch on some of the culture elements there as well, which were super useful. But I know that's all that we have for time today. David, great to have you back. And thanks again for being able to share some of your best practices here. Thank you. It was a pleasure. So that's all for this episode of AI in Industry. I thought David brought an excellent energy and some tremendous insights. If you've enjoyed this episode or this new format, this new series that we're using in AI in Industry, this this entire monthly theme that we started developing has actually come directly from listeners like you. I'm always fielding LinkedIn comments and emails from listeners, and we decided to make this big shift around these general kind of business focus areas like ROI as opposed to diving into individual sectors. Um, If you've enjoyed this episode in this whole new format, make sure to drop us a review on iTunes. If you really love what you're getting out of it here, let me know exactly what you like. Let me know an episode that really called out to you and leave a review on iTunes. It really means the world. I'm often going to be sharing those reviews in our actual newsletter. Those of you who are newsletter subscribers have already probably seen one or two podcast reviews in the newsletter in the past. Uh, They always mean a lot to us and it helps more folks learn about what we're doing here. So that means a lot. This is the last episode with a guest here on our series of AI ROI in this month of September. Uh, In the coming episode, we're going to be focused on our analyst call, which is essentially where I will be breaking down the top insights on AI ROI that we've learned from our own research here at Emerge. We've done deep dive research into financial services. We've had clients pay us for projects to go into healthcare and into retail and a variety of sectors. What are the main patterns and threads that tie to what our experts have talked about this month that we've learned in our own research and hard experience in finding ROI with AI? That is going to be the focus of the next episode and you will not want to miss it. So I will catch you next Tuesday here on AI and Industry.